the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... So welcome to this new episode of Sake on Air. Brought to you with the support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. Usually we record from the Sake and Shochu Information Center, but uh, today we're on Zoom again. And um, it's a great pleasure to have our usual host Justin with us, but today I'm particularly happy to have Marie back on the show to talk to us about, I think, a, a, a fascinating uh, topic for, um, for, for the world of sake and uh, something which is really promising. It's Koshu. So good evening to you. Good evening to you too. Um, and Sebastian, thank you for having me on the show. It is actually um, a great timing because as many of us have uh, we've been I've been spending quite a lot of time indoors thanks to the whole COVID pandemonium and I believe as is the latest trend I've been culling my pantry going through some old inventory and what have you and have found a couple of bottles of unopened sake maturing in less than desirable conditions so wow. being able to talk to you guys about it today and definitely learning from your wealth of knowledge and all the you know recent discoveries out there makes me feel less guilty about that so hey, are, are these bottles older than covid they they precede covid yes so i would say they are pc probably two pc two years prior to covid or so Okay. <laughs> um, I think there's another one that's probably slightly older, maybe pushing on five years mark, but um, they're nowhere near a antique collectible yet, perhaps one day. So yeah, I'm excited to learn more about it and just feel less guilty about my mishandling of these. Uh, <laughs> but, but you, you don't know that you mishandled them. Until no, we don't. No, we them. don't. That's the that's the gamble and that's the fun, I guess. So that's where I'm at. So what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? That we're, that's what we're talking about today. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Koshu. How do we define Koshu? I mean, Justin, what's, what's, what's your uh, take on it? Uh, definition of koshu. Um, the koshu, definition of koshu is it's, it's defined by its lack of definition, <laughs> isn't it? Sadly, yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, koshu literally, um, if you look at the actual characters for it, it literally reads old sake. Um, it doesn't specify the nature of the liquid in the bottle or anything else. All it lets you know is that it was brewed in recent history, possibly quite recent history, or much later. And so it's, it's, it's rather vague. Yeah, because, I mean, there is actually no definition under the tax liquor law or tax liquor, yeah, tax liquor law. Um, I mean, the first definition I saw was uh, what's the, in English, Vintage Sake Association in Japanese. How is it called? Uh, isn't it? Yep. And what they say about koshu is that the sake has got to have um, three years of maturation or existence and no added sugar. I think that's the definition that the association is, is proposing. But it doesn't help much of it. I mean, well, it's, it's the definition that they've that they've proposed and as a result it's been largely adopted mm. basically just because nobody else has come up with anything else another proposition prior or well until recently since and so it was just sort of became even though the members of that organization are limited to but i think there's only there's roughly say 50 members of that organization, about two thirds of them are breweries, some are wholesalers and retailers, but it's clearly not representative of the entire industry. It's representative of, you know, a segment mm -hmm. of the industry 
that got together and you know um, were able to agree upon a certain a certain definition. But as you said, it's not um, legally defined in any way. And so, but as a result, because that's sort of been adopted, that's what a lot of the education or a lot of the communication states that you know the koshu is sake that's been aged for a minimum of of three years. Um, but in reality, there is no real legal definition. I guess you could say. Yeah, because under the definition, I mean. I can think of many different things. Um, I can think of sake that's been um, left over because it was not good. <laughs> and so it's waiting until it gets good or it gets palatable. Or I can think of, um, of sake that uh, is left there because it was just not sold. So it was good, but for some reason, um, the clients did, did not buy it, so it's 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 been sitting there. Um, but it's not the only only two dimensions. I mean, clearly, uh, amongst these uh, fifty or so members of the association, you have kura that have specialized in the production of koshu of matured or aged sake, um, and uh, they've been doing that for. A, a number of, 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 of years now. And the, the association was created in 1985, if I'm, if I'm correct. So that's already 36 years of, um, of, of, of history. Uh, what, what else can you think of in terms of, uh, how, how, how broad it, it can get? How, how, how difficult it is to define Koshri? I, I mean, you touched on an important point and that kind of comes down to intent. The intent of the producer the intent of the seller, and then the intent of the consumer, right? And when you factor in time, all of a sudden, every person along that chain plays a role, intentional or not, mm -hmm. right? right. Um, and so the idea of having, let's let's assume that the definition is a, is a minimum of three years and a producer ages a sake for three years, brings it to market and says this is our you know our three-year age koshu um then that's sitting at the retailers um as you said that may or may not sell right away um for any number of reasons um that retailer might decide to sit on it for even longer because they see a future in whatever's in that bottle um and that would be part of the intent it may sit on the shelf because there just wasn't Maybe that's a retailer that doesn't have a particularly large client base or market that they can bring that that, that they can bring that type of product to. Um, it just didn't get prioritized, so it ends up sitting there for four years or five years. That's a possibility. That's you know neither the intent of the brewer or the retailer. Um, that being said, it could end up in the hands of a restaurant that you know serves it thinks it's fine and then sees further potential in it, keeps it open, decides to sit on it for another six months or six years. And they're, you know, at, at that point, they're the last ones who play a role in that because they're providing it directly, you know, as a service to whoever's dining there. Um, but then you also have, of course, um, the consumer who gets their hands on a bottle of sake um, and they don't drink it for a period of time. You know, is it because they want to let that sit a little bit longer, um, whether that be in their fridge or under their sink or, you know, wherever it is they, they keep their, their beverages? Or is it just one that they got for a present? They don't drink a lot of sake and it ends up just sitting for a long time. I know my family has an entire collection of those. I should probably, <laughs> my friends, you know, I should, I should probably dig through those one of those days. That's your story, Mary. Um, similar along the line, I would say, um, I think at least one of the bottles that I discovered in my pantry was, um, I, I guess for the lack of a better word, what you would call a competition sake that came in its own proper wooden box and everything. Um, I must have gotten it as a gift years back and then thought, oh, you know, this is such nice sake, I must save it for an occasion. And it was just quietly resting, sleeping, being forgotten in the back of my pantry, um, now gleefully discovered. But um, I now have this conundrum of, should I open them now or should I give them a couple more years? Or, 
you know, what should I do? Should I even talk about it? Because I do feel a bit, a bit guilty. Um, will my sake community judge me if I do come <laughs> come out of the closet? That, that's a very important point because in, in recent years, the, the sake market has been really uh, trended toward uh, pushing freshness as a core value or quality. And um, Koshu is, is, is going against that trend um, because uh, that's the important word that you mentioned uh, just in this time. Um, time is kind of left out in the equation of, of sending um, to the market a fresh sake to, um, to consumers. Well, it's there, but time has to be as short as possible. Uh, Koshi uh, comes as sort of a, a new uh, dimension, a new, a new, a new uh, paradigm in, uh, in the world of sake, doesn't it? There's also the you know, conversation of how do you define or distinguish between Jukuseishu and Koshu. I think Justin touched on it briefly earlier, um, but you know, will will I refer to my forgotten age-old sake as Jukuseishu or Koshu, or are they, you know, just in a new entirely new category altogether? And um, we have several vague guidelines um, proposed by individual organizations or opinion leaders, but like Justin said earlier, there is no industry-wide or, or legal standard. Yeah, and that's, you, you, you brought up another important word is that I have the jukseishu, mm. which is right, literally matured sake, um, whereas koshu, the actual, the literal translation would be old sake, which doesn't sound quite as appealing, um, but it's, you know, a lot of times they say aged sake, um, jukseishu being matured sake, then you can add Choky onto the front of that long-term age sake, you know, um, and it's and it's and that's a that matured or that long-term age that jukseishu. That's terminology that's been, I think, prevalent for a significant period of time, but it hasn't as as far as sort of a nature of a process. But it hasn't been used, at least not prominently, until probably relatively recently as. A signifier sort of used to indicate the nature of the process that it's undergone, say, to a consumer. Um, this koshu tends to have, or at least it has, you know, been associated with certain characteristics um, in color, in flavor, in aroma, in overall general profile. Whereas when you look at jukseishu, and um, again, not all because there's no definition, but a lot of places that choose to use the term jukseishu tend to do so with the intent of indicating that it's different from a koshu, right? Okay. It has some of those characteristics that you're looking for from aging, but it's not immediately identifiable as something that a lot mm. of people would characterize as a koshu. Um, so it becomes all of a sudden now you have sort of two terms that are both referring to a sake that has undergone, at least in relation to time, a similar process, um, but an attempt to develop a differentiation um, between those as well. Um, but again, it's not a, it's, it's not clear cut there divide. Is, there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, matured sake is a you know sake that's had some maturing but still remains some of its original characters intact whereas koshu um or aged sake is some is you know sake that's kind of gone through a transformation if you will so that the original flavors and and characteristics are barely noticeable or or not at all there anymore hardly resembles its former self <laughs> <laughs> hardly so i think in in if i were to put you know koshu and jukuseishu in a nutshell and have to compare them side to side although they are apples and oranges i would say koshu is you know has is more transformative as um, whereas jukuseishu is a bit more evolutionary very good point um, what Justin brought up earlier, which I thought was really interesting, is the notion of choki jukuseishu, so long-term matured sake coming into circulation in 
relatively recent years. I wonder if that circles us back to um, Sebastian's point earlier of how aging and old sake for a, real, a very long time have been considered as not so desirable in the Japanese market, at least. You know, we tend to associate the word ko or furui with not so desirable. I think like when it when you say old rice or komai, um, you know, leftover rice from previous year, it's kind of like a discount product um, and on the store shelves. And I wonder if Chokijuku Seishu was sort of like a, a producer's way of leeway around the notion of aged sake without having to use the word kōshū. Yeah, what, what a great transition, actually, because we I was about to uh, ask you or, or maybe remind our listeners about um, how kōshū or kōshū's history has uh, evolved over the last uh, centuries. Um, and I wanted to, I mean, there's no harm attracting your attention or uh, your focus on a recent publication uh, by Sake Today, the magazine, the English language magazine about sake and sake culture. There was an article by Ayuko Yamaguchi, which gives us a number of elements about the history of, of Koshu. And, and clearly, in, in ancient times, um, I'm talking about Muromachi period or even Edo period, uh, Koshu was around. And, and more than that, Koshu was seen as a very valuable sake, at least when it was good, I suppose. Um, and you know, there is this, all these, uh, Japanese or I would say Asian uh, notion or perception of, 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 certain good and bad years and three year, five year, nine years, koshu or age sake um, was seen as an extremely valuable product in the market. But then something happened when the Meiji administration came into power, it had to find huge new sources of funds to change Japan, transform its economy, transform its society. Uh, the uh, most, the only actually revenue of the state was the land tax. And the administration chose sake, Nihonshu, alcohol, as the new source, I mean, the, 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 the leading source of income for the state coffers. By all means, this, this was not new. And, uh, at least some Japanese researchers thinks that Japan is one of the country that started taxing alcohol the earliest. I mean, before China and most definitely before Europe. So very early, sake became a source of income for, uh, the elite, uh, either the imperial house in Heian times or the shogunate in, in Kamakura times. And it's, the shogunate started to, um, actually tax koji, uh, koji making rather than sake making because uh, they didn't want to hear about uh, sake. It was not seen as a good product for, uh, for samurais to consume anyway. And so the Meiji administration did was to choose a particular avatar of a sake tax, and that avatar is called zo kokuze, which means to tax sake as it is produced. And actually what it meant is tax sake as it is pressed from the mash. And um, by choosing such a mechanism to tax uh, sake production, they just discouraged the entire brewing world um, from uh, aging or, or maturing sake. I mean, very to be very practical, uh, there were a number of uh, tax inspectors um, touring the country, going uh, from Kura to Kura, counting rice bags, counting moromi tanks, and making peregrations, and, and coming back a few months later and asking for money. 
Um, how many moromi tanks did you do? How many sake bottles did you or sake taru did you produce? And uh, asking for money immediately. So, of course, nobody had interest keeping such sake. Yeah. And I guess Every producer had an interest just selling yeah. it. And we're in the time period, you, you mentioned Meiji, but just to date it, this was the, was it like 1870, late seven, or sorry, 1870, late 1870s, 78, 79? 1868 is the, is the Meiji restoration. And the, the taxis were introduced progressively. There were different taxis introduced, um, like royalties, um, I mean, brewing permits, royalties, and then this Tokokuze came into force a few years later. And in, in 1904, which is a very important date for Japan, because that's the time, or that's the year when uh, Japan, um, fought, I mean, or won a, a war against, against Russia, uh, sake was, or sake taxis, was the number one contributor to the state budget. So at one point it was making an astronomical proportion of of yeah, it was funding. about 35, 30, 30 to 35% of the tax, of the tax budget. Um, and the land tax was a little bit behind that. Um, and, and that level was never found back because, of course, as the, uh, of the Japanese industry started to grow, then corporate taxes started to play a, a growing role and then income taxes in, in the state budget. But clearly, uh, that so Kokuze, um, played a, a very important um, role in the this uh, temporary um, erasing of the koshu culture or mature sake culture in Japan. Right. Well, because like I said it was in, instituted in the late 1870s, and then it wasn't abolished until what the 1970s? Is that right? 1970, yeah, I think right? yeah, that's the and so that's that's the time when it completely disappeared. Right, and so if you think you have a 100 year gap where you have you've discouraged producers from holding on to anything, I and mean, it's not that you technically couldn't, but right, the risk, especially given, I mean, think of the state that just Japan was in at that time as well, too, what Japan's going through in, you know, the early to mid-1900s, they had a lot of other trials, a lot of other things on their mind that were probably, they were thinking about a little bit more than what is the culture behind aging the sake, and maybe we should sit on this, because this could, <laughs> this could this could be great for a for a hipster market in, in you know, 50 years from now, and <laughs> you know, it wasn't, that wasn't, top priority um and so right i think i that i guess would be a similar sort of similar business model to as how many whiskey brewers you know that came up in the recent years have faced um and how they've they've had to find ways of creating revenue through different means in the meantime whilst they wait yeah oh and sorry, and, and what I find interesting is the reason why certain breweries started to to focus on on kosher again in 1971, and and or in the 1970s. And the driver was not the change in the tax, per se, but it's a combination of factors. I mean, 1970s in is the time when the the big brands from um, from from Nada in particular uh, were. Uh, at maybe possibly the peak of their of their of their might, and they were uh, present all over the country, um, pushing their products through all the media. I mean, radio, television, um, and so on and so forth. And um, it just meant that for for local brewers, you either had to uh, produce for these big guys, or you had to create new products and differentiate your sake from what these breweries were offering the market. And um, I, I read that's, that's how or that's why uh, uh, Daruma Masamune, which is uh, one of the famous uh, koshu brands in the Japanese market, got into koshu. I guess there was a little bit of, of, of luck involved as well. Like they just opened an old bottle and it tasted like 
Mm, really good. So I said, yeah, there's, there's, there's value in, in, uh, in H sake. And, and from there, they, uh, redeveloped a, a, a product, uh, that had, that had disappeared from, from, from the shelves. And we, and very much with trial and error because there was no, no text. There was no brewing book about how to, how to age sake. And, and I can, that's kind of, Explains why it's so difficult to define it today is because there is no um, standard uh, that that is imposed on the market. Yeah. And when you're when you have something that's essentially been erased for a hundred years, and you know you go and if you go and talk to producers uh, about that time and sort of the approach of the tax office, there you hear s- stories sometimes about the intensity <laughs> and thoroughness um, through which they went you know, checking records and making sure that there weren't, you know, bottles or flasks stashed here and there. I, I, you know, you hear, you know, how, to what degree are all these true, but you hear stories and rumors of, you know, people, you know, coming in and looking in closets and over, you know, looking under tatami mats and, you know, trying to find the hidden cellar and trying to, you know, do all these things. Cause they said it was essentially funding state activities mm for the most part for a very long time so that was a primary revenue service you know uh, you know revenue source for for the country and so then when you're gone for a hundred years that's also going to impact the type of sake that you make as well too so a lot of things that people then ask is you know what makes a good age sake well you also have this a hundred year span where all of the technology all the major technological advances i mean you could ar- argue something like say for example you know, the development of large, you know, kyoke or cast making or the process of kimoto style brewing or these certain things um, historically have been very, very significant. But in a very condensed time frame from the 1900, from about 1900 or just after the 1900s up through about the 1970s is just a massive explosion of uh, technological innovation in brewing mm that doesn't necessarily take aging or maturation into consideration because it's essentially been erased from, from the market. Nobody's right. Right. Exactly. And so nobody's thinking about, you know, what makes a good age sake, you know, it's not something that people are considering. Um, And so a lot of times now people, a lot of people ask is, you know, what's the recipe for a great age sake? What's, you know, you know, what types of sake are good for aging? When everybody was doing the research on everything else, that just kind of got left out of the conversation for the most part, right? So you lose, the brewers lose the ability um, and are not engaging in the process of trying to understand that. And at the same time, you have a hundred year gap in consumer understanding, you know, of what an aged sake is. So all of a sudden, even if it's 19 you know, it's 1980 and you have something from 10 years ago and you drop it in front of somebody, chances are nobody's ever seen a sake of that color with that profile, with that, 1980, I mean, this is very recent history, you know? And so you have to, again, from scratch, without any, you know, um, without any standards, without any definitions, uh, without any truly thorough research or understanding from, you know, a technical standpoint, um, all of a sudden presents something that the that the market has never seen, not just for a handful of years, but for a century or more. You know, and so you're in the process of having to build that from scratch. And one thing that they're really leaning on is this idea that you mentioned, you know, Sebastian earlier, is that the idea of an age sake or a long-term age sake is something that has been appreciated, you know, historically. Mm but it's just been something that's been erased from recent history. So we're now we're responsible for, you know, kind of creating that again. Absolutely. I think if anything, you know, although there has been recent foray into, you know, scientific research and studying of Koshu, um, namely led by Mr. Ueno and his Toki Sake Association, um, I think we're only kind of scratching at the surface, if you will, of like rediscovering our lost heritage of aged sake because when you when you take a hundred years into consideration into context, 
it's a vast amount of time for, you know, cultural heritage to be handed down or, or technical knowledge and technical heritage to be handed down. So that's probably we're looking at a span of three to four generations of brewers um, who have kind of been just left out of this practice and this culture of appreciating age second. Um, and it's chicken or egg, you know, because there is no longer age that can be produced. Probably the market and the consumers have quickly lost palate for it. And it is a misfortune that we have um, been out of touch with this particular category of sake and this particular, you know, culture that we're only now rediscovering to appreciate. Mary, you, you mentioned uh, Wenosan. So, I mean, maybe just one, one word. Uh, about uh, Wenosan, uh, Nobihiro uh, Weno is a Japanese gentleman who uh, was trained as a bartender and uh, worked for um, a hotel, a new Otani hotel, and then La Tour d'Argent restaurant there. And I think after introducing Koshu to the French chefs at La Tour d'Argent, he, he really saw the value of uh, Koshu. As, as, as a drink, uh, or maybe he was convinced before that, but it just saw that there was a good, um, feedback or reply from a new, uh, potential sake consumers. And since then, I mean, he's been the ambassador, uh, or one of the most prominent supporters of, uh, of Kushu, of H sake. And so he had a place, he has a place called Shu Salon. It was in Shinagawa. Now it's in Ginza. And, um, I actually interviewed uh, Wenosan uh, recently, but going back to something else you said, in 2019, he created, uh, he was the founder of, of Toki Sake Association. Um, today, there are about seven members and he, he will aim at, at growing that, that, uh, that number of, uh, of, of members. And um, Toki means, uh, means, means time in Japanese, but it, I think within Toki, there is this a notion that time is, uh, is, there's something positive about changes in time or, or the way time, uh, or, or of the way, um, uh, times brings changes, some, something like this, but that's a very Japanese nuance. Um, but I, I wanted to, uh, to ask you, I mean, if somebody asks you, what, what, what does Koshi taste like? What, what, what would you answer to that? Let, hold on, let me see. <laughs> mm, this particular one that I'm working on here, hints of almond, mm. raisin. What color is it? Is it still transparent? Oh, or no, no, is no, it no. Amber? So we're looking at, we're looking at something. It's very amber. amber? Very amber in color. Okay. Yeah, I guess different. So what I'm saying, I just kind of, I, I got home right before starting this. I just grabbed the most koshuish looking bottle Um Near near the near the fridge near the cellar and and just pull this along, um, and this is this kind of gets back to what we we're talking about a little bit earlier. So it's sold as a ten year koshu, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it was from two thousand five. So, Whoa. and then I bought it two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, and it's been and it spent most of its life open. So what is it at this point? <laughs> you yeah. know, um, it's a, it's a great example. Yeah. I mean, he, he was aged for 10 years by the Kura and then aged by the retailer for a while. And then you've been aging it yourself. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's great about exactly. Koshu. Yeah. And it's, and it's fantastic. It's sake. Fun. Sake. Um, but it's, um, without a doubt, Koshu, um, as opposed to a Jukseishu. Mm. I mean, it's, it's got, um, it's got weight. It's got, um, this one isn't, isn't overly sweet. It's got some acidity. Um, it is a Yamaha. It's rather high alcohol. It's about 19%. But yeah, a lot of the characteristics of these more Koshu-esque um, styles, like I said, this one's got raisin and almond. Uh, you get nuttiness, you get caramel, you get, you get spice in some, uh, you know, almost like a, like clove um, or yeah. something like that in 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 some cases um earthiness a lot of earthiness occasionally it can be very sweet as well almost like like plum mm. 
but it's very different from the 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 green apple or the banana or the cantaloupe melon or, or the pineapple you know, and the, mango. Exactly that. Um, I, I and I, that's that's why I think koshu um, can be easier to understand um, for Westerners who 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 are used to drink fortified wines or uh, aged wine than for um, one or two Japanese, I mean, generations of Japanese people who've been mostly used to fresh uh, sake and, 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 and fragrant sake. Because these characteristics, these aromas that you're describing are the ones we find in, uh, in fortified wines and, and aged wines. I mean, sherry, uh, in the case of, of koshu, it can go uh, as far as, as soy sauce from, from, from time to time. Um, I mean, these, that, that makes koshu. Yeah, um, these are all flavor profiles that, you know, we know exist and appreciate in more Western beverages. Namely, like you said, sherry. Um, I think some koshu tastes like port, uh, Madeira. But I've also had the um, pleasure and the fortune of having like really delicious dessert koshu, if you will, um, which tastes like noble rot wine um, uh, or like a sotern or tokai, like really concentrated mm. honeyed, especially if you try like aged kijoshu. It's just Indeed. beautiful. It's very syrupy, um, flagrant cinnamon and just kind of honey. And it's all that gooey, delicious sweetness. Yeah, <laughs> I like the way you shake your shoulders saying that. Excitement. Excitement. Yeah, and and I guess you will agree that it makes koshu a great companion for for food. Um, and I mean, a number of our guests have said that before. Uh, be it uh, Pablo in Spain or, or or Xavier in 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 France. I mean, koshu is is a great companion. And, and, and because it's a great companion for Western food, for cheese, for, for certain types of, uh, of Western preparation, it's, it's, it's a great ambassador for, for sake as well, I think, in, uh, outside Japan. With a lot of international cuisine, like I said, there's a lot of profile notes that, like you said, people are used to integrating into the worlds that they're already filled into, into sort of Epicurean experiences that they're already, you know, familiar with. Something I wanted to touch on is uh, we we recently I mean you, we just described what can go really well when you aged a good um, a good sake. Uh, maybe we should say uh, a few words about what can go wrong uh, with uh, with aged sake, and um, it might not become a a, a product um, because the, the, the brewery is unlikely to release it, but consumer aging in particular can uh, can lead to a certain uh, less palatable experiences. So um, can, can you do vinegar with sake? Or does it turn into vinegar naturally? <laughs> oh, does, it, uh, does it turn to vinegar naturally? It's, it, it, it shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, unless you you bring the uh, microorganisms yeah. responsible for um, creating that acetic yeah. acid, and these are not present in sake naturally, it it, it should not turn into uh, into vinegar. However, um, there are certain aromas or flavors uh, associated with mm, well, not properly aged sake. I don't know if the right word, but sake that has not aged well. Um, and that's that's something you can you can hear about sometimes. It's called a hiochi, uh, some these kind of burnt uh, aromas. Or... Yeah, it's um, that evolution of sake over time. There might be a handful of people that that judge that as being you know less than desirable or to have you know some sort of a flaw, whereas. There might be a segment of the population that actually says, this is really nice. I actually enjoy this or appreciate this. So it's a, it's kind of a tough line to draw in some cases. I mean, speaking in regards to, uh, you know, can AH sake go bad? Um, I haven't had success, if you will, in converting sake to vinegar. 
not um, um, not personally, but um, there have been there certainly have been sake that have had years under its belt that I was super excited to try, and it just kind of came out less than impressive. You know, where um, for me the aroma had kind of evaded altogether, making the sake sort of feel a bit flat and just um, mm-hmm. all oxidization, but no real complexity um, or, or nuances. So um, there have been sake that have definitely benefited from age, aging and some sake, you know, because of what the sake originally was or because of a number of different variables like how it was stored, the, the duration of which it was stored, um, that turned out to be less than what the fuzz was about. But I guess that's all a, a part of the enjoyment and the fun of trying to play with time, right? Yeah, that's, and I guess maybe it's important, I guess maybe to, to just touch real quick on, on, I guess another question that comes up a lot is how is sake aged um, when it's mm. done so intentionally? Um, and then you've got two conversations there is one's on the producer side and then one's on, you know, the, 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 the consumer side. I would say in most cases, um, sake that is aged with the intent to be then turned into a product sold as koshu, for example, a lot of it tends to be bottle aged or aged in bottle. It's usually those big 1.8 liter um, ishobin tends to be the standard maturing tool vessel for that. Um, that being said, there are some places that mature in tank. In those cases, if they're maturing in tank, a lot of times it's going to be ambient temperature, not always, but in, in many cases. Um, but then once you get into bottle maturation, it, it's sort of all across the board. It sort of depends on the intent. Um, for a long time, it would have been just ambient temperature. Whereas in the last probably 20 years or so, you've been seeing a lot of um, producers investing in refrigeration um, and cool storage. Um, and so you've been seeing places, you know, mature things in bottle for a year, three years, five years, uh, whatever. And it's going to mature very, very different at low temperatures. A lot of times those temperatures they're maturing at are 10 degrees, you know, Celsius or below. Um, maybe often five degrees and in many cases zero or, or sub-zero temperatures um, for in order to um, stall um, that <laughs> that maturation process try to sort of suss out the desire compo- components without letting it just run free without letting it kind of run wild um, and so it's going to be very different um, depending on what they're on the profile that they're going for and the nature of the sake that they're maturing um, but then once it falls in the consumer's hands, then it's, you know, where do I keep my sake or how do I store my sake? Um, and the kind of the general, I guess the general rule though, you know, we generally say on the show is, you know, keep it, keep it chilled, keep it in the, keep it in the fridge or in the cellar. Um, and if there's not room in there, keep it in at least a cool, dark place, whether that's, you know, a cupboard under the sink or in your closet or whatever, um, unless, um, you know, you've gotten your hands on something that you've been informed otherwise, and those exist. Um, but um, yeah, just, I guess, just worth noting and worth considering just that even though we're saying maturing, you know, the, the nature under which it, uh, you know, it's undergoing that, that maturation process is really going to change um, and what the brewer intends on their end um, versus how they want you to experience that is going to be different as well. You, you mentioned uh, beans bottles as the most usual way of maturing yeah. sake. But what else do have we got? We've got tanks, and these are usually steel tanks, mm. um, ceramic jars. Yeah, that's the one I did. In, yeah, in there are there are a handful of those examples. Um, but coming back to coming back to tanks or, or, or barrels, I mean, there there might be this perception that a lot of sake is aging in 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 wooden barrels. But I mean, for me, that's the exception. If 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 it does exist, I mean, we we I, I definitely see more and more products that has been uh, matured for for mm. a short while in um, in in wooden barrels. But I. I 
I'm not aware of any long-term aging in uh, in wood. Uh, do you do you have examples? Have you tried? I can't such think of any right offhand. There are a lot of products that spend time in barrel or cask, and and it might be a quote unquote koshu. It might be something that's spent three years, five years, sure. eight years maturing, but that time that they're spending sure. in barrel or in cask is more to add nuance as opposed to having that be the dominant or having or trying to use that as a dominant characteristic so it's maturation time that might have spent five years either in tank um or in bottle and three months or six months or only nine months in a barrel or cask so it's only spent a small fraction of that time and it's sometimes even less it might be a matter of weeks and so it's it's more of a fine tuning um, tool as opposed to it being a sort of a, a maturation standard, at least at this point. I, I imagine there's there's probably an exception or two out there where, I don't know, there's a socket that's been sitting in an old, you know, whiskey cask for nine years or something. It's probably out there. I just get, it just doesn't come. Because it was forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> Someone tried experimenting and forgot it halfway through. Um, yeah, same here. The number of of sake aged or not originally that have had any barrel contact um, that I know of only had a brief, relatively brief uh, maturing period in, in barrels. Um, like Justin said, less so as a storage solution, but definitely more so to sort of infuse and impart some of that oakiness um, um, barrel flavors onto the finished product. One thing that I just kind of wanted to mention, I guess, was that the nature in which a sake matures over time, yes, you can anticipate certain alterations and characteristics and qualities. Um, you know, we understand what happens when you leave something with certain, you know, constituents in it. Um, that being said, whether that sake turns good or whether that turns bad, it's not linear. Mm. It's not a yeah. parabola. It's not like it goes up, it hits a peak and goes down. Yes. Um, I guess what's important for you to understand is that it is sort of a, a series of ebbs and flows and that, um, you know, a producer might ship something that they intend. They, you know, they say, you know, this is the point, you know, after X number of years, we think the sake is great. Um, and this is when we want you to enjoy this. Um, a year from that, two or three years from that, it could be less than ideal, right? They've maybe sussed out that this is a good time. That be it, that being said, another couple of years down the road, it's entirely possible that it may be, it might be something different, but really, really exceptional, maybe even better than that initial experience or, that, or, or what they originally intended. And then it may sit there for a while, but then it could take a dip. But another couple of years down the road, it could have another peak. Like it's a series. It can. It's entirely possible to have a series of peaks and valleys. Um, so as opposed to you know a lot of other um, you know fermented Absolutely. beverages and, I mean, and spirits, where there is, I mean, there is the this, idea this of being a search peak. for the peak. Yeah. Mm. Um, right now, it's you know, is there going to be one? Sure. In that, in in those peaks and valleys, somewhere in there, there's probably going to be a period of time in there that you find to be better, but once it crests that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all downhill. Um, it could very much over time, you know, turn into something else and have another, maybe somewhat different, but equally interesting and possibly just as delicious um, peak somewhere down the road. And that could be a year or two from that initial peak. It could be seven or eight years from that initial peak. Um, and some, you know, some sakes are going to play with that um, a little bit better. There's a lot of sake that's, you know, Two weeks after you open it or whatever it's just going to go downhill and just plummet and it's never and it's never coming back that's entirely you know that's that's entirely true but it's not um the fact that this is a world that hasn't really been fully um understood and researched is part of what makes it really really exciting mm -hmm. as well i think from from a service standpoint as well um sure there's a little bit of risk on the consumer side um for sure um, right. If you don't want to, you don't want to mess up that bottle you just spent $30 or $40 on. Um, but say from a service side, as a service professional, the idea that, you know, once you've opened something, once you've served something, maybe if, you know, you're no longer happy with it past a certain point, 
maybe you can sit on a little bit longer or, you know, here's something I feel like there could be some promise in, you know, let's get a case and sit on some of these over time and see what these do. Cause it's entirely likely that, you know, you'll then be able to offer experiences that can't be duplicated, that then can't be duplicated anywhere else. And so, you know, from, you know, that's, and that's just really, really exciting. Every time I hear the word service about sake, there's a bell ringing in my head, um, which says, we have to talk about temperature because that's one of the uh, key uh, functions and skills of anyone serving sake, uh, or at least a, a broad range of sake. So I'm, I'm staying away from the more fragrant, uh, daiginjo-esque type of, uh, of, of, of animals or beasts. But um, the the temperature is going to affect the taste of of koshu like any other sake and, and one of the great um attractions of koshu is that it can be enjoyed at warm temperature and it will um offer a very different experience to the to the consumer i, I want to talk a little bit about um marketing i mean uh, toki sake association uh, is aiming at branding Koshu or creating a brand with Koshu. And actually, Wenosan was saying, maybe we should start in, in Europe um, and then brand Koshu in Europe, then bring it to Asia. And then in Japan and in the US. Um, the US was, was last, but we, we, Last, we discussed last time, Justin, how Nigori was probably the main product for the U.S. market or how, at least how successful it was over there. What Wenosan uh, is, is trying to do, is trying to address a, a challenge, uh, the challenge of uh, making Koshu popular in a market that wants more and more uh, freshness, more and more fresh sake. And, and that market you're referring to being Japan. Yeah. Yes, Japan. Yes, um, yeah. So, uh, what what do you what do you see as the main challenges for for koshu in Japan? I mean, it's basically what you said. Well, it's kind of what we touched upon earlier that it's just been absent um, from the market for so long. Is that there's just there's no mm-hmm. shared understanding around the value proposition of what's in a, an aged bottle of sake. Mm-hmm. It just it just doesn't exist. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so the challenge that you're saying, what they're trying to address is, and that Ueno-san and some of the um, producers that are working with them in Tokizake, as well as, you know, a lot of other independent, you know, producers um, that are involved in other organizations are just doing their own thing, is they're trying to find a way to set precedent for a sake with that has undergone a certain degree of aging, demanding a certain price in a certain context because it just doesn't exist right now it's all over the place you've got places that sell you know right now you know 20 year age koshu for you know you can get a bottle of 20 year age koshu for you know 20 dollars or something like that in some in some context not a lot you don't see as much of that today as you did you know 10 or 15 years ago but it's it's still out there there's it's hard to find even a lot of long-term age sake that's been around for 20, 30, 40 years that demands more than a hundred dollar price tag, you know, whether it doesn't deserve more than a hundred dollar price tag or not. I don't know. It's not up to, it's not up to me to judge that. I, I don't know if you need any um, external organization or authority to, um, to get involved in, in that, but what I can, what I see is the need for a big change in, in, in the culture um, amongst brewers and in the Japanese market, uh, in general, and that's something we, we discussed uh, in this uh, podcast program a few times already, is how prices tend to be set in Japan, um, and selling price tends to be uh, producing price or production price plus alpha, alpha being the margin of, of the brewer. And as soon as you introduce... Um, a premium for fresh sake that alpha is basically the, the logistics to get uh, the, the sake to the consumer as quickly as possible. Um, here we're, we're talking about 
putting a value on on time, and that's obviously much more much more complex or, or complicated. And um, I was quite fascinated um, reading the report of that auction that took place a couple of years ago, was it? By Kokoryu, uh, I think it was two years ago or so, or maybe yeah, maybe three, maybe three or four years, years ago, maybe yeah, three years, yeah, three, maybe two thousand eighteen or nineteen, and Kokoryu had aged a particular set of products of different vintages between uh, two thousand twelve and two thousand fifteen, and they gathered their retailers or their their partners, I would say their business partners, to offer them a tasting of this sake and actually a meal uh, with this sake. And then they asked um, for these partners' bid. So it's, it was an auction uh, for the various vintages. And the the results came, came out at, at pretty high levels and they had to, to raise both Quantities and and price and price brackets, and that I, I, I thought that was really clever and and really innovative as well. It's definitely reassuring as well. Like like Justin said earlier, it would be very difficult for any of us to place a an absolute monetary value to an aged sake. And I think when you look at sake as a commodity, I think that's when it departs the realm of food and consumables and it kind of quickly enters the realm of, you know, collectibles and antique because it is no longer, you know, how you define a price for a product is no longer mandated by the mere ingredients and, and the, the production methodologies, but more so the sentimental and subjective value you dis- you attach to it or you you assign to it sure there is scarcity scarcity um yeah, and scarcity. you know there is a, to a certain extent you know the the state of restoration uh, the the state of um of preservation and the the original ingredients and you know the techniques that went into it sure do play a role, but that's not going to define the the final price tag that it bears. Yeah, and yeah, as we were saying earlier, it's uh, it's it's a it's a new it's a new segment. It's a new market. I mean, it's it's been there for a while, but um, maybe with the rise of sake of the Honshu in overseas markets, um, we. We'll hear more and more about, about Koshu. I mean, I see Koshu sections in international sake competitions today. Um, so clearly there will be, there will be more and more communication around Koshu. Yeah. And that's what, and that's what kind of what they're banking on too, I think, is that the international audience will, um, sort of pick up that ball and run with it just because, you know, as, as we've mentioned before on the show, the, the Japanese, sake nihonshu consuming population is in decline and has been in decline and so then from within that very finite audience um you know there's only so many people you can convince to spend you know more on a bottle of sake in a style that they're not used to so it's you know no matter how hard you work you're you're still up against a a a ceiling you're going to run up against the ceiling at some point so that that market has to come from somewhere. That's really a hand they can play. I mean, just even looking at a relatively recent success of Japanese whiskey, you know, no one thought, no one gave Japanese whiskey two thoughts before it became ragingly popular elsewhere. And now, you know, even for those of us who live inside of Japan, it's very difficult for us to get our hands on any good Japanese whiskey anymore. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point. I mean, just having a precedent, even though whiskey is, you know, it's a distilled spirit, it's a completely different beast, but just having precedent, you know, that association could go, potentially go a long ways to help. And I guess the other thing with trying to come up with ways to sell, you know, exceptionally, <laughs> for, for most of us, exceptionally high-priced um, bottles of sake, you know, in, in Koshu is that... Um, Sebastian, as you mentioned before, a lot of the pricing schemes for sake until 
relatively recently, um, probably in the last 20 years or so, have basically been production cost plus plus alpha, which is not a lot. It's basically based on what does it cost to make this plus then what do I need just to get my, you know, my margin by, uh, you know, assuming I can sell X number of bottles. Um, and they've had trouble layering any other additional profitability sort of on top of that. Um, so as a result, there's not a lot of range in the market um, for a lot of products. Um, it's out there, sure, but it's they're, they're, it's very spotty. Most of it sits in a very narrow range, you know, between say, you know, $8 and $20 a bottle. And then anything, you know, $30 and up is, is pretty, is pretty spotty, um, arguably. Um, and so when you've got an industry that's already sort of struggling financially and you don't have a market that's willing to, you know, it's hard to even up your price, you know, say, $2 or $3 a bottle, that's a tough proposition to not just the consumer that's used to spending a certain price, but also to um, your retailer, your distributor, whoever's in the middle for them to be able to, to agree, you know, to, to get on board with that. It's almost in a way easier to sell and sort of starting to sell all your products for a dollar more or $3 more to sell a small handful of products for $500 more or a thousand dollars more, you know, since you can't get your return on, you know, 98% of your product, get a massive return on <laughs> 2% of your product, you know? Um, and, and that's, that's sort of another end is that it being, it not having a set standard sort of gives them the ability to, to move a little bit more freely if they have a partner or a group of partners in which are willing to, take part in that experiment with them, or if they're independently willing or able to see that through, you know, and to, and to, and to realize that um, in the marketplace for themselves, then it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's wild west, I guess you could say. In mm. a way. Mm. Well, we've covered a fair bit of ground. There is obviously more to say about, about coffee yeah. and, and the culture part. Yeah, I said you. Well, you've got your interview with. I would, you know, I would recommend listeners to go check out the, you know, the the uh, our interview from Sake Future Summit um, on Age Sake. Um, you did your interview with Uenosun recently. We're, we're sitting on some other material that we can hopefully um, transform into something in the near future in, in some form or another. Maybe. <laughs> We should age your recording. There we go. Yeah. Maybe that's, 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 that's a great we plan. We should just not release this. And then after this show is long done and gone, we'll release this in what, like yeah. the year 2052. And people wonder what the, what the hell it was we were talking about. <laughs> that looks like Maybe a plan. Kind of a, kind of a time uh, capsule. Yeah, we could auction mm. this off for a million dollars. That's it. Yeah. That's it. But the I mean, unreleased that's, that's Koshu very... episode of the highest bidder. Exactly. Yeah. Like a non-fungible token. There we go. There we go. Oh, there we go. Look at my finance hat. That's oh, it. Oh man, Marie, you're in the zeitgeist. <laughs> it's on. Let's do it. Let's let's do it. Let's fund another. Let's fund another eight years of production here at Sake on Air. Done. Done. Perfect. I think that's a I think that's a good place to uh to call it good for this evening. Yeah, I think the past that's, we we've settled on our financial model. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Get with the times, right? Perfect. Perfect. Well, I think what's very valuable is to have you on the show, Mary. So um, hopefully, uh, I mean, it was a real pleasure to have you. Tonight, we miss you to talk about to be doing koshu. We, we we miss you. So thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, next uh, to the next episodes where we can you we can get you um, behind the microphone or behind your iPhone. And it's been a real pleasure to to talk about koshu with with, with you today. So mine. Thank, thank you, you so much. much for having me back on. 
Um, it's been good to catch up with you guys and definitely talk about all the amazing potentials, you know, that we have yet un- yet to cover yet to uncover in in the world of kosho. Um, I feel less explore. guilty about the three bottles I found in my pantry now. You could be sitting on some some treasures, some real gems there. So you you let us know when you're going to crack those. We'll we'll we'll, we'll all continue. Yeah, we'll definitely open up. To take plan. part in that experiment. That's a good plan. Yeah. Um, Sebastian, Marie, thank you so much, um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Sake on Air. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, feelings, you can send those to us at questions at sakeonair.com. Follow along with us at, at Sake on Air on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you'd be so kind to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever it is you're listening to, it will help us a great deal and it will help other sake or future sake fans uh, discover the show. So that would be greatly appreciated. The show is brought to you with the support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and recorded usually from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Posuke Productions with Audio Magic by Mr. Frank Walter. That will do it for another episode of Sake on Air. Come by. Bye. Bye. Bye.